So hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Open Swim with your host, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz. Eric Kogelschatz. Brian Andrew Jasinski. Alex Knight. And for the very first time, introducing... Emily Hu. All right. All right, yeah. Welcome. Welcome, Emily. I just joined Sharky Minnow as a marketing strategist a couple of weeks ago. I have a passion for design and marketing, and I spend most of my days, in quarantine at least, hanging out with my dog and looking for new recipes to try. Excellent, excellent. What's your favorite recipe that you've uh, that you've recipe tested in quarantine? Oh, so recently I've been really getting to trying out new Japanese foods. Um, I saw a recipe online for Japanese egg sandwiches, um, and they're super easy to make, um, and they taste really good. And I've been eating a lot of bread as a result. So. Here we find ourselves at our last recording of the year. We're actually recording this one day before Christmas Eve is upon us. And we thought that it would be kind of fun to take a look back at our episode from this time last year, which was all about predictions for 2020, which while you may think everything got thrown out the window, we found was not so. Um, So what we thought we'd do is go back assess what we said at the beginning, you know, going into this year, and then make our predictions for where we think those things or other trends will go in 2021, even though so much is uncertain. So going into this year, there were two things that really affected everybody's lives, at least here in the U.S. and also around the world. Um, The first was obviously the pandemic. That was a big surprise to many people. And the other, you know, we certainly knew was coming here in the U.S., which was the election. And while it is something pertaining to U.S. politics, you know, certainly we're a geopolitical player and this affects international politics as well. And so there were a lot of things that we were keeping eyes on as we went into an election year. And it shaped some of our predictions, although, you know, obviously with changes in administration, things may go in a different direction than even we had thought of when we were making the predictions going into the election, because there has been so much change in the last 12 months that it was impossible to really treat this election cycle like any other. So why don't we start with you, Brian? Let's talk about what your trend that you talked about at this time last year was, how you think it played out, and then where you think we're going. My topic that I had forecasted as we recorded at the beginning of this year was that around cancel culture, because there was so much happening in terms of celebrities and politicians and movements. I would just like to say when I predicted cancel culture for the year, I was not expecting everything to be canceled. Obviously, we are living in a world where events events have been canceled, holidays have been canceled, human interaction has been canceled. Certainly, the landscape that we came into this year was nothing like anybody could have predicted. But I do think, and we've spoken about this even in some recent podcasts, a return to authenticity and a return to engagement and engagement with others in this world where we've now been very much in quarantine for approaching 10 months. I think there is much less of a patience, if you will, for what people are sensing much more quickly as inauthentic. Personally, seeing some situations that have happened locally, that have happened on a national level through politics and even globally, there is less willingness to almost tolerate 
people or businesses that are coming across as inauthentic or using uh, social trends or things in the news to benefit them. It's so much more magnified because people are so much more, are paying attention as a united globe to the news. Pre-pandemic, you know, there might have been different styles of, of information or news that one was interested. You know, you might have been somebody who was very interested in economics or you were somebody who was interested in technology or politics. And now because of the pandemic, all of those things are affected. And it's not just the thing that I think I have upset over and over about the pandemic is, you know, a lot of times when there's news, it's affecting one country, it's affecting one region. Literally, this has affected the globe. You know, when we talk about the vaccine, it's not about a certain country or a certain region. It's, it's literally our world needs to be vaccinated. So more than ever, Every piece of news, every piece of information that we have been processing and trying to understand for the past year literally affects everybody. So I think everybody's paying attention to things in a much more united front. That was one of my observations in terms of the way I feel cancel culture has evolved. Yeah, I definitely agree, Brian. It definitely seems like that cancel culture movement has applied more to corporations and their position within culture and how they can support not just their customers, but the community around them. That seems to be much more important in how they are civically engaged and contribute to society. Also, a new accountability has emerged, and that's very much in part due to the waves of social injustice. And obviously, through George Floyd, people were much more being called out rather than just the whole kind of thoughts and prayers, you know, or just making your account a black square. You know, people are like, what are you doing? The whole kind of the idea of putting money where your mouth is, our action. Brian, I think what you're trying to say is we saw an evolution of cancel culture over the last year, and what started as a lot of talk has now moved into actions. As I have said so many times on this podcast, we're moving towards a place of people really voting with their dollars. And in some ways, it's a throwback to when I began my marketing career, and you heard a lot about cause marketing and greenwashing in the environmental sector or having a cause that you know was tied to your brand. It's no longer enough to just attach yourself to a cause. Consumers are expecting you to really make a stand, give back, be involved with the people, the populations, the sectors that you serve. They want to vote with their dollars. They want to spend money with brands that they feel share their values. In this case, when there were a number of horrific things that happened this year outside of the pandemic, particularly when you talk about George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and everything that's happened with Black Lives Matter and the social justice sort of new wave of that particular, you know, the shape of that movement in our country. There are a large number of people in this country that are exhausted by talk and want to see action. The way that cancel culture works, we've seen it move beyond where it was before, and people are really demanding action. I'm curious, Brian, what you think that means for 2021. How will this continue to evolve? It was very easy for people to talk the talk and perhaps something along the lines of, I love local, I love local restaurants, or you know, think about every time there is an incident in this world, in particular in this country, when there is a shooting. And the first thing you see flooding Social media is thoughts and prayers and a call for change, demand, there's anger. And then 
sadly anymore. A week, a few weeks may go by and that goes away. And those memes and the statements people are making on social media fade away. And I do feel that this year in particular, and I, I think a lot of it does have to do with the fact that we are in a place in this pandemic where not only are people being more reflective, but things that matter and that are key to humanity have been magnified more than ever. And so when these horrific incidents happen throughout the year, there is a sense of enough is enough, not just that idea of putting up a black square on your social media and pushing send and there you've done your part. Corporations really saw the fact that people were no longer going to accept a well-tailored message placed on their website or a statement made by the leadership of the organization or that company. People were demanding, what is it that you're doing? What is it you are doing to create change? How are you being responsible? What actions are you putting into place to, as they say, put your money where your mouth is? It was only, as I said, magnified by the brain space everybody is collectively in. Going forward, it's changed forever. The idea of quote unquote thoughts and prayers, people don't want to hear that. They want to see action. They want to see a plan. They don't want to be that idea of almost like a teacher or a parent patting you on the head and being like, oh, it's going to be okay. We'll take care of it. It's like, no, we want to see why you see that it's important and how you are making change and what your plan is. Brian, what you're saying, a big part of it is where collectively we are as a population. Where's our psyche? What's happening with us? I know so many people that at this point in the pandemic feel isolated, feel scared, feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. They can't see an end. Even though there's a vaccine, they're like, I don't know when I'm going to get the vaccine. I know people who have lost jobs. It's a really scary place to be. And when you find yourself in a low point in your life in that kind of cycle, and you turn on the news and everything there is so bleak and it's very triggering for people in this country that have been living with a lot of trauma whether it's present trauma inherent trauma trauma that's almost imprinted on your dna through generations of trauma to be in that echo chamber in your life behind a screen for however long we've been here now what is it nine months a hundred years who knows a lot of people are just at the point where they are saying enough is enough and they want to make changes and it's really funny I feel like every time I get into the car lately and I don't know if it's just whatever FM station my car is set to I, I keep hearing the song Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson and for some reason it's always at the part where he's looking in the mirror and he's going to make a change and all this stuff and I wonder if they're playing that on purpose I think there are a lot of people at this point in time that mm -hmm. are really thinking about how do I want to live my life when I'm able to reemerge into the world? And the idea that we used to say there was a new normal and it almost felt like it was being enforced upon us. I think a lot of people are making choices going into 21 about, I actually want to make purposeful choices about living differently in this next year when I'm able to be a part of the world in a more public way, certainly, but even before that were to happen. I just want to say real quick, I am super surprised to hear that Hallie heard Michael Jackson in her car and not Bob Seger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, for everyone who's at home, just so you know, if you haven't listened to past recordings, I, I love the radio. I always have FM radio playing in my car. I'm a radio junkie, but for some reason, every time I turn on the radio, it's Bob Seger. He like follows me around 
And I know a surprising amount of Bob Seger songs prior to this period in my life. I wouldn't have called myself a Bob Seger fan, but I think I might be moving towards like the president of his fan club now. So I think what we're going to see going forward is this call for accountability. And as opposed to cancel culture, which, you know, we talked about in the podcast at the beginning of the year where there was a bit of a irresponsibility to that. You were judge and jury, that person is canceled, move on without, you know, maybe not knowing all of the inner workings of the situation that was quote unquote being canceled. I do think there is a call for that accountability. So perhaps instead of a cancel culture, it's more of a call for activation in that that goes back to the idea of what is that organization going to do in response to whatever the situation is, be it a political scandal, be it an economic downfall, be it a social justice issue? I think that is where I would like to see things continue to move. You know, that idea of not just getting up on a podium and being angry about it, but how do you as a consumer engage and activate as well as those companies, those businesses, and those figures in a sense in the world that you are supporting and that you are engaging with. Instead of cancellation, I I call for activation. So Alex, I know last year you talked about blockchain, you talked about regulation, how that might affect innovation or the way that operations work in various ways. What do you think about your production last year at this point? Did it come true? Did it materialize parts of it? What are your thoughts? It's kind of hard to say for sure. But yeah, the emergence of blockchain has definitely been prevalent and has accelerated during this year. One thing that I'm that I've been curious about over the past, you know, 12 to 18 months has been the transparency in the movement of goods. So really thinking about like the logistics and supply chain and sort of the behind the scenes action of when you go to the store, how that product got there. And while I would say that blockchain is not something that businesses or people are interacting with, on a daily basis at a mainstream level yet, I would say that the quote unquote market cap for blockchain has increased this year and that there is a direct sort of correlation to COVID-19 and its effects on consumer behavior, wanting to have knowledge and transparency of where their products come from. Not only that, but it, it just helps in general with businesses tracking their inventory and tracking the you know, pain points in their supply chains and optimizing to make sure things are as efficient as possible. There are a few things that I was looking up because I was curious about what is the outlook now as we're at the end of 2020? What is the sort of the outlook of blockchain look like for 2021 and beyond? I have a few different sources that I'd like to speak to. And one is, of course, when a lot of people think of blockchain, they immediately turn to Bitcoin and they think about cryptocurrencies and they think about public ledgers. And it looks like in terms of how the blockchain for Bitcoin has really grown in popularity over the years, looking at a, at a graph from Statista, the ledger and the data it just continues to increase year over year. That's one metric. And then I found an interview with Mark Treshock, a blockchain solutions leader for healthcare and life sciences at IBM. And this interview was conducted just a few weeks ago on November 25th. 
And he was talking about how blockchain can help with the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine and the various vaccines that the different companies are working through. So basically, he's saying that blockchain has the potential to track COVID-19 vaccines and make sure that they haven't been compromised because of all the different variables that go into the storage, making sure that everything's temperature controlled, for example, and how that variant by brand by brand, essentially. And he was saying that just being able to know the exact path that that vaccine took is critical and made the point that this is really important, not just for the United States, but for the entire world and especially for the developing world knowing that in this case that these vaccines are good, they haven't been tampered with. And then at, at a, just a broader scale, knowing exactly where your stuff is coming from, knowing that it's safe to consume, safe to eat, safe to use, is really important for the health and safety of global citizens, essentially. And no matter who you are or where you are, it's important to just knowing that what you're putting in your body is, is safe. And not only that, Alex, but the efficacy, like when we talk about things like herd immunity, like what is that vaccine in places where there isn't as much quote unquote trust in the system in the world? If you're in a place where you may live in a country that has a lot of political turmoil happening and you don't know how goods are getting in, you want to know that your population is really getting the right vaccine so that you know that everyone is being kept safe and that we're getting to that point of herd immunity. So it really helps to just create, as you've always said, that transparency in the process so that we know exactly with what we are dealing. Right. No, exactly. And what we, what everyone has had a sort of a reality check that I think everyone knew, but didn't really think about because everyone is patriotic, no matter what country you're from, but the COVID-19 pandemic has really opened or it's really shed a light on the fact that, hey, we are all humans, no matter where we are. It doesn't matter if you're in America or if you're in South Africa or if you're in Australia. You could have COVID-19. It, it doesn't matter where, what country you're from or where you live. Like This is a human health crisis. It's not just like an American issue. It, it's a global pandemic, as we all know. In, in the interview, Mark also went on to, to say that blockchain can also be used to help patients essentially track their vaccine records. And it could be used in the future for people to provide proof of vaccination for going back to school, for traveling, etc. And one thing that I'll be looking out for is he mentioned that IBM is working for specifically for the solution for keeping vaccine records. IBM is working on a structure to address this, and it's called IBM Health Pass. Hopefully, I think the goal is for private and personal information to be stored in a very safe way that's not compromised as it relates to the health and wellness of people, especially as these vaccines get rolled out. This could be a really cool innovation. I assume it's a public ledger, essentially, for knowing if someone has has been vaccinated or not. So, you know, they're they're free to go travel or et cetera. So that's something I'll be looking out for. Attend concerts, et cetera, yeah. like that. Yeah, I was reading about that as well, Alex. It's fascinating. I was thinking it's almost like you're new, a new form of ID that right. we'll have. You know, like you have you have your social security card, you have your driver's license, and you have your immunity card. You right. Know, it's really crazy to imagine that that's the world that we are now entering. Brian, when I was reading this, I was thinking about. I think we were joking like a week or so ago about you know. Oh yeah, there's going to be like a QR code like tattooed on your on your skin to say if you got vaccinated or not. Like, you know, I don't know if we're at that point. Yeah, for sure. This is it's this world is getting very Gattaca. If anyone's ever seen that movie, it's 
Uma Thurman is is coming. <laughs> that whole uh, <laughs> world is coming to to be. Another really cool thing I saw was that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security listed blockchain as a COVID-19 critical service this year. And they really talked about how food and agricultural products are distributed and how that's going to be just a really critical part of the overall food supply chain infrastructure moving forward. Speaking of IBM again, that IBM seems to they're really seizing the opportunity here to roll out blockchain technologies. IBM has developed the IBM Food Trust, whose members use a distributed ledger technology to monitor the movement of food products from farm to market. So basically what they're doing what we're talking about already. They're saying they're they're tracking how something is being picked um, or harvested at a farm and how it's moved to Heinen's or your local grocery store. And there are some big players that are already using this ledger. So Albertsons, Drapers, Raw Seafoods, the National Fisheries Institute, and Walmart are just some of the current users of this IBM Food Trust. So that's another thing that we'll be, you know, definitely looking out for, how that grows, how it's used in the future, et cetera. So what you're saying, Alex, is if you like to buy stacks, now is the time to buy IBM. Yeah, it might not be a bad time. Yeah. So with all this said, we've seen technologies like 5G really rolling out, technology communications players in this space, Verizon, AT&T. T-Mobile, like everyone's claiming to have some sort of 5G or the best 5G at this point. There are phones that can be connected to 5G. New iPhones came out that are connected to 5G, which I think will really propel 5G forward. But in general, yeah, I think we're still a year, if not a couple of years away from seeing 5G at where it can be, as well as blockchain technology being utilized as well as it could be. Towards the beginning of the year, this is pre-COVID, Gartner came out with a research study saying that 80% of companies who use blockchain will still be like in a testing or like infancy stage by 2022. That was pre-COVID. So I will assume that some things have been accelerated since then. But I think that it all goes back to companies' dedication and what they are looking to do in the future as they grow and try to navigate uncertain times with digital transformations. That's really all it comes back to is how you're using information, how you're making it available, and then how you're using it to optimize your performance and product offerings and service offerings moving into the future. Alex, one of the things I saw, because I, I remembered your trend and I want to go back and, and look at the progress made over the last year. And one thing I saw that I thought was kind of interesting was from the, the Office of the Controller of Currency, OCC. And they made a statement that said that in order to achieve widespread usage, blockchain and crypto assets need to be classified and treated as currencies because we need to treat that system as an asset and regulate it in that manner. So your original trend talked a lot about how regulation may stifle it. If we think of it as a true currency, and, and I know when people think that they immediately go to cryptocurrencies, but think about how it can be applied to all the things we just mentioned, the vaccine to food and, and throughout the whole supply chain. When we think about it as currency, people will care more about it versus simple technology that we've all been conditioned to just throw away after a few months and buy a new iPhone. So if we think about it as currency, people will want to take care of it, keep an eye on it, and, and make sure it's protected. Yeah, it'll be really interesting as we continue to modernize as a society and how we continue to use these different tools 
it's really going to come down to leadership at companies and, you know, what their initiatives are, if they're, you know, really forward thinking about the long term versus the short term. 2021 could be a big year for that. So that's a really good point, Eric. So Alex, what else are you thinking for 2021? What are some things that you have on your list of predictions? So one thing that I looked at is looking at the transportation industry in the United States as a whole. And we could have a whole podcast series about this topic, especially since Shark Minnow works so heavily in transportation. But I'll try to keep it somewhat broad. And what I want to do is establish a little bit about like what the industry looks like right now, and then look at how the, the new Biden administration coming in in January could affect transportation as a whole. I try to look at different types of transportation. So looking at trucking, looking at intermodal and looking at ports, both on the East Coast, the West Coast and like the Great Lakes region. One thing that I think it will be big for 2021 as well is the emergence and continued emergence of electric vehicles. But essentially, as we know, COVID-19 really hit most industries really hard, especially transportation. Trucking and imports decreased at the beginning of the year. But looking at recent data and predictions from key players in, in the overall industry, it looks like GDP is increasing a bit. It looks like freight volumes have increased a bit uh, over the past quarter or so. Looking at the American Trucking Association, they actually predict that freight volumes will grow around 36% over the next 11 years. And by the end of 2020, they're saying that freight volume is likely to have decreased by a little over 10% year over year, but they are expecting it to grow by 4.9% in 2021. So there's some positive outlook there. Yep. There's a lot of things going on on both major coasts, east and west coasts, in terms of just how the overall supply chain works and operates. Looking at the ports of LA and the port of Long Beach, and then looking at on the east coast, looking at ports of New York, New Jersey. On the east coast, the port of New York, New Jersey is handling just a ton of cargo. And what they've reported is that they're handling a 30% year-over-year increase of imports from Asia due to dwell times and lack of capacity on the West Coast, which I thought was pretty wild. Major ports in Georgia, South Carolina, and Virginia are also reporting increased volumes. And overall, what we're seeing is that total U.S. imports from Asia in November across the board increased a little over 27% year over year. A lot of things are happening. We're seeing a lot more products and goods coming into the country which is, I would argue, a good thing. It's just how is that going to be handled? Are the U.S. ports equipped to handle all of those containers, all of those goods? Do we have the right technology in place? Do we have the right systems in place for how we move those containers and other goods from the port to the heartland, to the Midwest, to their final distribution centers? There are going to be a lot of things that the, that the industry is going to have to look at. And the new administration could possibly play a role in this to keep the United States ports, especially the major ones, competitive as we move into the into the new year. If we turn our attention a little bit to electric vehicles, according to Morgan Stanley, global sales of EVs will grow 50% or more in 2021, while internal combustion engines, so just your regular car, are expected to grow at a 2 to 5%. There's a clear opportunity here, and I think that this could be a key agenda item for the Biden administration. As we look at Joe Biden, it was recently announced that he will be nominating 
Mayor Pete Buttigieg for the Secretary of Transportation position in his cabinet. So I think together they can sort of work to um, try to modernize infrastructure across the United States. And people think about roads and bridges. There's a ton of improvements that need to be taken place across the country. But then looking at other things like ports too, keeping them competitive. If we look at some of the quote unquote like super ports, huge international ports in like Southeast Asia, for example, what we have in the United States is, is really not close to what they're doing, where it's highly automated and efficient. We're seeing a lot of gridlock and a lot of things happening in these major coastal ports that could tamper with our global competitiveness. According to Joe Biden's website, his plan for infrastructure is he wants to dedicate $2 trillion to this. So there are a bunch of initiatives here, but in terms of transportation, there, there's one of the first things listed as an increase in infrastructure. So like I said before, not only just roads and bridges, but green spaces, talking about ports and talking about modernization of these facilities, making things connected to the internet, for example. One other thing that I thought was really cool is it looks like what they would like to do is make sure that cities that have a population of at least 100,000 implement a transit system using clean energy for these cities, which I think is a great idea. Thinking about, you know, where the where the transportation industry is today and looking at what Joe Biden and what Pete Buttigieg could possibly try to push through in terms of how to spend that $2 trillion budget that they would like to propose at some point. I think that a few key things will drive the results and the possible success of this plan. So one is, of course, this talking directly about the $2 trillion, an increase in government spending. So supporting the airline industry, supporting roads and bridges, the highway system, rail system, trying to modernize everything, broadband and internet connected devices. That'll be a big thing to look forward to, not only in 2021, but in the in the Biden administration as a whole. There could be, in general, just more regulation. And not that this is a bad thing, but there could be some things about increasing taxes on airlines, talking about how many people can sit in an airplane, for example, how are we going to propel gas standards for car manufacturers in the future? I would imagine that there will be some big steps taken with the Biden administration's claim to really want to tackle climate change, get back into the Paris Climate Accord. There will be things there to look out for. And then as we look into specifically for personal transportation and the rise of EVs, it seems like Mayor Pete and Joe Biden would possibly want to increase the number of EV charging stations across the country, which would be a great thing. And there could also be some changes to the way that the highways and things like this are funded with different types of gas taxes and things like that. I think that these are all things that we should keep an eye out for as we move into 2021, as it relates to the transportation industry. These are challenges that automotive manufacturers are going to have to face. I mean, it's not that the technology isn't there. The old tried and true analogy is that, you know, the Model T could get 40 miles to the gallon. So we've had this technology around fuel efficiency for a long time. And there have been different business and political motivations to not greening transportation when it comes to personal vehicles. And at this point, my hope as a fervent environmentalist is that it will no longer be a choice, that we're going to make it so easy and so possible for people to have access to highly efficient personal 
vehicles and charging stations and things like that, that no longer is it looked at as a luxury or something that's in, ineffective because it's difficult, will make it so easy that everybody can think about going green. And it'll be you know as simple of a decision as it is to green other parts of your life, like city-provided recycling, which obviously has some challenges as well, but we won't go there. But hopefully what this means is that, again, we're allowing people to feel as if they're not having to choose when it comes to being efficient and green or going after a lower cost option. We're making it just a lot more easily accessible to everyone. That's a really good point, Hallie, because we're seeing shifts in consumer behavior. People are now demanding these EVs and climate-friendly products with obviously the hot name right now is Tesla, but you don't have to look far to see how legacy car manufacturers and car companies are starting to take notice of this and see what Tesla's doing. They're now profitable. And there are some iconic cars out there that are now becoming EVs. For example, we all know about the Ford Mustang. Ford is now electrifying that. Other car companies like GM are also you know, taking notice of this. And as more players get into the market, things are only going to get better for everyone to, to participate and purchase these types of vehicles, which in the long run will be great for, for the world, essentially. So Alex, actually, that's a really good segue into my trend from last year, which was all around, you know, this move from eco-consciousness to eco-shaming to eco-status and then eventually eco-expectations. And, you know, for a lot of reasons that I could not predict in my crystal ball, we did find ourselves in a moment where there were a lot of people that were thinking about their environmental habits and also thinking about the way in which environmental issues affect communities that are at varying levels of socioeconomic stature. And so I will say that during the pandemic, it really, it helped to support my trend prediction for this year. (laughs) So I can look at that as a a mark in the W column, but a lot of people were taking a look at how they were living while they had the time to do so. So simple things like greening your kitchen or growing your own herbs, or some people got really involved. There was a huge trend around home gardening this year. You know, you were finding places like Home Depot and Lowe's just sold out of gardening equipment, fencing, bird netting, uh, all these kinds of tools and tactics around how to grow your own food. People were thinking even further. You know, I will say that in the community that I live in, there is a, and we've talked about them on the show before, full disclosure, they, they are a client of the firm, but there is an organization called Rust Belt Riders that also makes a potting soil or a soil product from compost called Tilf. And I can't tell you how many people in my neighborhood have started taking advantage of the Rust Belt Riders home composting program during this time. And that's kind of a micro trend, but we are seeing it in terms of the way that people are thinking about consumption as well. So last year we talked about Burger King and plant-based options on the menu. And since the prediction, McDonald's has also followed suit with their McPlant. And a lot of other food and beverage providers are looking at ways to weave more environmentally friendly policies or practices into the way that they're actually making their foods. And so I do think that that trend has come true. I think that we're going to continue to see this trend in in various ways. One of the things that I'm interested to watch is how the behaviors make their way into design. And one of the things that I've seen a number of predictions around is the fact that we are moving away from this, this high gloss period in design. So 
a number of uh, design trade publications that I look at have defined it as millennial pink, right? So in the last few years, I think a lot of the you know fashion forward, trend forward publications, when you look on social media, when you look at home decor trends, you always see that pink wall, right? And that's a very like trendy, you know, of the moment stamp on I would say the last five years in design. We've seen a lot of that bright pink. And what we're now seeing is that as a result of the pandemic and people becoming more environmentally focused, we're seeing some shifts in that design. One of the trends that I've seen predicted in a few publications is called grand millennial design. And I love it because I'm a person who loves mid-century and all things 60s and 70s, but you're seeing a lot more of this like organic influence. So in home decor, what that means is a return to wallpapers and natural fibers and fabrics and grass cloth and macrame and weaving and textiles and people getting into knitting again and looping their own rugs and things like that and just getting back to a more natural way of living and looking in our homes, our appearance, and in the design that you're going to see out there in the industry. So that's, that's my trend pick in terms of aesthetics. There's also some predictions in how this might affect the real estate and development market. There's some thinking that you're going to see this blended approach to what people are looking for in homes. So not that people are going to migrate away from cities, but that they want to have the ability for more public spaces and the idea that that could be in their home. It could be as simple as a deck or a patio, but that they're looking to live in places where there are parks and trails and opportunities for outdoor recreation, that this is going to be a much bigger part of the way that we live in the next, I would say, the near future and beyond. But I think people have really come to value the environment in a different way and we're going to see that make its way into our lives in so many different ways in 2020 and I hope for the long run. Well in a sense we have this very strange experiment and you know we saw just within weeks Mm -hmm. of quarantine what was happening to the environment you know so we would never have been able to conduct a global experiment at the way we did and it really proved you know so quickly in a in a very astonishing way like how you know, you think of the, the canals in venice and and the wildlife that was returning you know to waterways what i was so taken by was just the the quick nature of it of how quickly things evolved and, and changed because of the way that you know, our day-to-day living changed it was the impact it's sad in a sense because you you do see that what that day-to-day impact is and how quickly it, it writes itself when habits are altered so this really allowed people to see the impact in real time it was a real world example when people saw that when they were seeing the data actually show them what kind of impact we were having on our planet and what it meant to take our foot off the gas quite literally and even the sounds, you know, and there was a lot of conversation around the volume of nature and how it got turned up when we really were able to turn off some of the other sort of acoustical interferences in our world. You know, you could see, you know, mm-hmm. you know, we are really a small part of what's happening, we as human beings on this planet. And that a lot of people, that was the wake-up call that they wouldn't have had otherwise because as you go about your day-to-day, as you get into your car, you're not hearing that. You know, our vehicles, most of them are like precisely acoustically tuned so that you don't hear all of that. And so I think that hopefully what we're seeing is a little bit more of a connection to nature. And I think that that's certainly going to play into behaviors, but as I mentioned, also into trends. 
Emily, I want to hear from you. So this is your first time on the podcast. I mean, no pressure, but I want to hear what you're thinking about 2021. What are you feeling like we're going to see as we embark on this new year? In 2020, I feel like a lot of people became more aware about things that were happening around them and everyone wanted to learn more, Um, especially with cancel culture. Eventually, it got to a point where people felt like it was just being unfair. A lot of the information seemed one-sided, and so a lot of people wanted to learn about these things for themselves. And because everyone was socially distant, we saw a huge boom in podcasting. And as a result of cancel culture and all these exposés coming out, the listening and the education category of podcasting went up 20%, followed by a similar increase in design. And this goes to show that people are just becoming more self-aware and mindful of things going on around them. And everyone just wanted to learn more. And I feel like this could go into 2021 with the same idea of self-improvement and people just wanting to educate themselves further. With this shift in podcasting trends, I feel like companies are also being more mindful how they interact with their audience, especially because everything is socially distanced. For example, Walmart is going to have a collaboration with TikTok for this upcoming holiday season. They're going to host a live stream of some influencers shopping on their platform and the audience will be able to interact with whatever products that they purchase while streaming. I know that I read an article a couple of days ago about um, Alexa incorporating voice activated word games, which is another really cool way of interacting with their audience. I think it's really cool because digital marketing or everything digital used to seem so one-sided. It used to just be companies or brands making content for the audience and then we just look at it. But nowadays it's more, what are better ways we can include our audience in this conversation? And I think that's really special. That comes back down to that authenticity, Emily, that we talked about earlier. You know, I think in this world where what has been taken away from us is that connectivity and interactivity and and that's so we're doing it in different ways and so the fact that it's rippling and finding its way into these podcasts I think speaks a lot once again to that psyche that we're we're finding ourselves engaging in. Yeah I really hope that when COVID settles down and everything kind of returns back to normal I really hope that this is one trend that doesn't go away. I know that when everyone comes back to like the real world um, where we can have more social interactions. I know people will be looking towards making in-person connections, but I feel like this is something that's really useful, especially given how different people interact with uh, different things. Some people might be more comfortable with these online interactions. And I just think it like feels almost more inclusive. And yeah, I really appreciate it. Well, there's been this awakening too of curiosity people like being excited about learning something new again and learning a new skill, learning a new trick, you know, like, you know, it's obviously more people are gardening as Hallie said earlier, more people are cooking and baking than ever. It's truly a return to learning. I tend to not like when people say we've been forced to slow down because I think in many ways from the way that we're, we're having to approach Eric and Hallie could speak to this, you know, any parent out there has had to definitely shift the way that their day-to-day works. And I think the way that the workforce has, is operating has changed, you know, but in terms of that idea of slowing down, I think in that where that does apply is that, 
you don't necessarily have all these events and appointments to get to. So that has allowed people to have these moments, you know, to see like, what is it I can learn? You know, are there was something that I've been wanting to do around my house, but I don't necessarily need to hire somebody. Maybe I'll learn how to do it myself. So I think that in terms of a silver lining in all of this, so that is, there's certainly been a return to uh, a craft. And again, I keep saying that word, but it goes back to, you know, that, that appreciation of authenticity and, and creation. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you just brought up with home DIY projects. I tuned into a webinar a couple of days ago talking about podcasting trends. And actually, a vast majority of people who listen to podcasts, no matter the category, all have invested a significant amount in home DIY projects. Home improvement goods has been really closely linked with how many listeners there are with podcasting. I thought that was incredibly interesting. So Eric, you're the last one to dish out your predictions for the year. What you got for us? So I thought last year when I made my projections, I was feeling pretty good about it. I was feeling very optimistic, very positive, And I feel like maybe 50-50 on this, like the result. There are a couple that I'm really excited to see they came through and others, not everything came to, to be. Um, but let me break it down. So the first one, actually, it's more of a global one, was this idea of ubiquitous resiliency. And it applied to how individuals, communities, corporations, and organizations will thrive. And the first one was this idea of civility. And what I said at back last year, 12 months ago, was that we'll be more mindful, that communities will rise up to define how we should interact with each other, what is acceptable. And I think we definitely saw that happen this year as far as the rise up, the, the movement to make it known how we should be civil with each other. But we haven't quite made the progress yet. So the statement was made through action, which is great. Now we need to see that come through the implementation of it, whether it be regulation, laws, etc., to ensure that equity is, is, is made possible, uh, especially in our social aspects of culture. So I'm, I'm excited to see there was progress, but obviously there's a lot of work to be completed in 2021. The next one was care. And I kind of focus more on the idea of how quantum computing and 5G will thrive. Alex talked a bit about that. We didn't see quite that progress in the last year, but the area where we did see it was through telehealth. Um, and that was one of the, the projections I had. And that's obviously mainly because of COVID. We were forced to interact more through telehealth. And I actually had a few telehealth appointments myself as the first time. Or you saw it happen more in 2020. And obviously, it'll continue to grow in 2021. The other one was connections. And the idea, and actually, actually kind of ties in with something Alex talked about, the idea that infrastructure needs to accommodate the future of transportation, any mode. And we saw... No progress on that, except I think a glimpse of hope is the nominee of Secretary of Transportation for Pete. That's going to be a, a big moment as he defines that vision moving forward. And Alex touched on a few of those items. And I think infrastructure is so important. And we need to see kind of a WPA style initiative over the next five, 10 years in the country. And 
again, it really has to focus on all modes of transportation and aspects of infrastructure, because as Alex pointed out, these Panamax deep water ports across the world, like Shanghai, are definitely more competitive and, and surpassing what the United States has been able to do. So that means infrastructure underwater. That means dredging. That means thinking about how we can make our waterways clear for this, these modes of transportation. So often people only think about roads, which is great because it creates jobs, but there are other ways to create jobs. There's other ways to improve infrastructure. Another one was commerce, and this is where I failed big time. The idea that finance <laughs> needs to prepare for recession to help shippers and protect everyone through delays and retail needs to be prepared for the recession. We were hit with the pandemic before the recession happened, and then we felt the implications of that. So it was much more of a reactive than proactive approach. So we definitely failed there, but I do see an opportunity to to improve, right? Because it's it's just like any type of physical activity or working out. You kind of push yourself a little bit. And that's what we did this last year. And everyone went to the extreme. So how are we going to take that to continue moving forward and improve commerce and, and how we make sure that we're more resilient as it comes to finance and shipping and, and retail specifically? Another one was the idea of the future of work and how corporations could be more inclusive. And I focused on the idea of digital and the idea of just generally being more inclusive. We did see that digital became a much more prominent aspect of business in that we were all spending our time on Zoom. And, and of course, there were different tools to assist us in our, in our work, but there's definitely fatigue and how do we get around that? And there still is the opportunity for inclusivity. We need to focus on that in, in 2021. And the last one I had was the idea of cities. And I think I was partially there in this one. I, I thought that cities will be more active in how they protect the privacy of its citizens and reward them for participating in climate initiatives to achieve carbon neutrality. And we did not see that proactive approach from cities, but I think we saw, as Hallie mentioned, citizens taking it on their own and making it part of their lives. So I think there's a bit of a win there, especially with the idea of composting and just the things that people are doing at their home. So I'm hoping that 2021 will be a year for cities to rise up and, and play that active role in encouraging positive behavior when it comes to the environment. I think the last one, I've been thinking a lot about this for like at least the last two years, is, is capitalism. So it's it's been called capitalism. It, it's often thrown to the side as we need to completely rebuild our system. But I, I do think we need to remember that capitalism is it's both economic and a political system. And a system has different pieces that work together to ensure that it can operate. And that said, there will always be some things that don't work. So how do you fix that? And I, I think there's also different ways to define capitalism, much like energy. You can say energy is bad when you talk about coal, but then there's solar power and wind power that provide energy. So if you think about it from that perspective for capitalism, there's different approaches. There's the traditional model of shareholder, right? Let's try to make as much money and profit as we possibly can. Then there's the idea of it's for the state. So more of a governmental approach to supporting. And then the last one that I think we'll see in 2021 is the idea of stakeholder capitalism, where everyone will play a role. And it needs to be led by corporations because 
they have the dollars to support and also to empower their employees. It requires equal participation by its citizens and government so that all of these issues of society and environment can come up, be discussed and resolved. But it's stakeholder. That means it's equality. It doesn't mean there's one power over another. It doesn't mean that profit is over progress. I hope that in this next year, we continue to talk about these systems that guide us. Um, and status quo is never acceptable. And it's not about resetting. It's not about returning to where we were. It's about moving forward. And how can we continue to make this idea of resiliency something that actually people can understand? Let's be more resilient together. Let's survive together. Let's thrive together as a community. This episode, my bigger boat goes out to the three new sharks that are joining Shark and Minnow. So Emily, who's joining us today on our podcast, who's a marketing coordinator at Shark and Minnow, Mary, who's an associate writer and public relations specialist, and Ashwin, who will be joining us in January as an associate videographer, editor, and producer. We're so excited to have you guys join the team. This episode, my bigger boat goes out to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. In a recent interview with 60 Minutes, the former director of the agency, Chris Krebs, claimed that this was the most secure election in U.S. history. For me, it's reassuring to know, especially as a result of the 2016 election, that steps are being taken to ensure that our elections are accurate. This episode, um, I actually have two bigger votes. My first one um, is obviously to Shark and Minnow. Um, it's been a really long year, um, and I'm really glad to have found what I hope to be a second family, um, especially during this difficult time. Um, and I really hope to grow more of a shark and minnow and I can't wait to see what's to come. Uh, but also, I just want to give a huge shout out to all these small game creators out there. I know that, um, especially during COVID, it's really hard not seeing or interacting with my friends, but so many have come out with so many fun multiplayer games that it's really changed the way like we interact with our friends online. They made 2020 that much better for me. This episode of Open Swim, my bigger boat goes to the countless people who make up the global workforce who are a driving force behind the literal wheel. So as many of our listeners know, Shark and Minnow has worked extensively in the intermodal industry. And over the years, it's opened my mind to the integral role that this industry holds in literally making the world tick and move forward. So in this upside down world we find ourselves in, I want to acknowledge the dedication of drivers and delivery services that are allowing our grocery shelves to be stocked, and food and products to land on our doorstep and holiday greetings to find their way to our mailboxes. And of course the crucial delivery that is the vaccine as the world begins its first line of defense against this virus that has changed the way that we work, live and interact day to day. So I like to believe that the nine months have shown a light to the fact that these things do not just appear like magic on shelves and in stores. So to all of those working tirelessly and making our world move in as much of a normal way as possible, we are beyond grateful. 
This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to Representative Deb Holland. Deb Holland is going to be the very first Native American cabinet secretary and the head of the Interior Department. And this historic pick is really inspiring to me as it means, you know, in addition to many other cabinet picks that have been really focused on making sure that, you know, we have representation at the national level, I'm just really grateful that we're going to have somebody in this position um, who's going to be looking out for the health and safety of our public lands, for environmental justice for all, and hopefully continuing the trend of better caring for our earth. So Representative Holland, we can't wait to see what you do. We're so inspired by you. This episode is in support of our new friends at InMotion, a nonprofit center dedicated to helping people manage their Parkinson's, take charge of their well-being, and embrace the opportunities and challenges ahead. Learn more at www.beinmotion.org. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marcia Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.